Mark chapter 14, 1 through 11. Now it was two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. And Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. This morning's sermon is about loving Jesus. Now, it did not take me long, and it did not require a great deal of insight on my part to determine that that was the main point of this text. I think Jesus himself tells us that it is in verse 9, where he tells his disciples, Truly I say to you that wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of me. And here we are, nearly 2,000 years later, on the other side of the world, in this place where the gospel is proclaimed every week, fulfilling Jesus' words about what this woman did for Jesus, how she expressed this intimate, intense, fervent affection for him by means of this extravagant and costly gift. So the question that arises from verse 9 is, why did Jesus ordain that her act would be memorialized in the pages of Holy Scripture, that it would be preached in the churches, and that it would be read by the faithful throughout the ages? And the answer that I come up with is that because what we read in this passage is a beautiful demonstration of what real love for Jesus is and what real love for Jesus does. You see, love is not calculated, it is not cautious, and it does not always act in practical ways. Wives, I want you to tell me, Would you feel more loved by your husband if he always acted in a practical and cautious manner in regard to your birthday or your anniversary gift? Only giving to you something that he has purchased within the range of a carefully budgeted amount and not a penny more. Or... Would you feel more loved if your husband, out of the effusive affection which he feels for you and his desire to express that affection 
blows his budget because he just couldn't help himself. Nothing within his price range would, would just quite express the intensity of his love for you. Which one would cause you to feel more loved? That's the kind of love that this woman had for Jesus. And evidently, it's the kind of love that Jesus calls forth from us, which is why he ordained that this extravagant display of love would be memorialized in the pages of Scripture and would be proclaimed amongst the churches everywhere that the gospel is preached. Jesus desires, in other words, that the preaching of the gospel would produce this kind of love for himself. Because this is what real, spirit-wrought, evangelical love is. The kind of love which the Bible repeatedly says that the bride of Christ should have, and in fact does have, in increasing measure for her bridegroom. It's the kind of love, for instance, that is illustrated so beautifully and poetically in the Song of Solomon, which can be understood as an allegory of the love which Christ has for his bride, his beloved, and the love which the bride has for her beloved, who is Christ. There is nothing cautious and there's nothing calculated about the love which flows between the bride and her beloved in that book. It's the same kind of intense, effusive, extravagant love of which Peter says should mark believers in 1 Peter 1.8. Though you have seen him, or have not seen him rather, you love him. With what kind of love? With a love that grows out of our faith and is expressed with a joy that is filled with glory. So the kind of love that the Bible talks about, which the church has for her beloved, who is Christ, is not a dispassionate, detached, unemotional, affectionless kind of love, if there really is a sort of thing. It's not the kind of dispassionate, detached love that you might have, for instance, for your uncle or for your second cousin whom you haven't seen in years. I mean, yes, you are, as a matter of fact, distantly related, and that does produce within you some kind of familial goodwill toward him, but it's not like you're counting the days towards the next family reunion. The affection of which Peter speaks and the Song of Solomon speaks and which this woman displays is the affection of a lover who longs to be with her beloved and rejoices in the knowledge that she will one day be with him in joyful, consummated love. On the other hand, if someone has no affection for Jesus, says the Apostle Paul, they are not saved. 1 Corinthians 16.22 If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. So affectionate, passionate, extravagant love, I understand to be of the essence of saving faith. I don't think you can really believe in Jesus and not love Jesus. In other words, if your faith in Jesus does not stir up your affections for Jesus such that you would lay down your life or break your bank for him, 
then your faith is no better than that of the demons who also believe and tremble. In fact, is that not the very difference between the faith of the demons and the faith of disciples? Demonic faith is a faith that consists merely in facts. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus died on the cross. Jesus rose again from the dead. It's a faith that is detached from any form of affection. God forbid that we have that kind of faith here at First Baptist Nixa. May God make us an affectionate people. This woman's example is a challenge to our hearts this morning, and it's a challenge to my heart because I don't want to be like the disciples in this story. I don't want an outpouring of love like the type that this woman expressed to be considered by me or by us as wasteful or impractical or unwise. I don't want this church to be stingy in its affections, to have our feelings always muted by words like practicality or decorum. I want my love and affection for Christ to so overwhelm my heart that it causes me to do things that the world deems insane. Much like David dancing before the Lord with all of his might in 2 Samuel 6, 14. Or like the widow giving all that she had to live on in Mark 12, 44. Or like this woman pouring out a fortune's worth of perfume upon the Son of Man. I want my love for Jesus to be extravagant. And that's why this passage is important for me. That's why this passage is important for you. Because it shows what extravagant love looks like. It shows how we may foster this kind of extravagant love in our hearts and in our lives. And it warns us of what will happen if we don't. So before we can focus upon this woman's extravagant love for Jesus... We need to briefly explore what it looks like to not have that kind of love. We need to explore the complete absence of affection in the hearts of the religious leaders of Israel. Now, when I say absence of affection, I'm not only speaking with reference to Jesus. That wouldn't be news. Obviously, the religious leaders hate Jesus. If we haven't caught that by now in Mark's gospel We've missed a whole lot. They are not fond of Jesus. That's not the news. These religious leaders have been plotting the death of Jesus ever since he healed the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath day back in Mark chapter 3. So I'm going to take a step further, and I want to make what I think to be a more poignant point, which is that these religious leaders not only had a complete absence of affection for Jesus, they had no real love for God, even though they claimed to love him with all of their heart and soul and mind and strength. That's the really stunning news. The really stunning news is that you can be extraordinarily religious. You can be even a religious leader and not Love God. And that's the warning that Mark gives us in the first two verses. 
It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and to kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from amongst the people. Now, Passover was an annual celebration commemorating the exodus of the children of Israel from the bondage of Egypt. You can read about it in Exodus chapter 12. It was a pilgrimage festival, one of three in the course of the Jewish year, in which all Orthodox Jews would gather in Jerusalem to celebrate and to offer the Passover lamb. Now, Passover begins on the 14th of Nisan. Judaism uses a lunar calendar. Their months have different names. They start, the year starts at a different time. And on the 14th of Nisan, every family would sacrifice a year-old unblemished lamb in the temple. Then they would eat that Passover lamb after sunset, which was actually the 15th of Nisan, because the Jewish day begins at sunset and goes from evening to evening. This commenced a week-long celebration that was known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which commemorated the Israelites' exodus from Egypt, which had been so hurried that they did not have time to allow the dough to rise. Well, since Mark places Jesus' death on the day before the Sabbath, in other words, Friday, that's in chapter 15 and verse 42, And he places the Last Supper, which was Jesus partaking of the Passover meal with his disciples on the night before, in other words, our Thursday night, then two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread would make this clandestine meeting amongst the Sanhedrin sometime between evening Tuesday and afternoon Wednesday. Kind of gives you a place to put this in the course of the Passion Week. Now, I want you to just look at the way Mark describes the degree with which these religious leaders hate Jesus. They want to arrest him. They want to do so by stealth. And they want to kill him. Okay, this is not the description of due process. These people are not concerned with truth or justice or the honor of God. This is murder. This is the calculated and cold-blooded attempt to destroy a person whom they hate. But they know that they have to be careful because Jerusalem, during the week of Passover, is swollen with pilgrims, particularly Galilean pilgrims, who were known to be excitable, and many of whom thought that Jesus might just be the Messiah. And the last thing these religious leaders want is a is a popular uprising that would provoke the interests of Rome. And so the question of how they're going to resolve this little dilemma becomes clear in verses 10 through 11 when Judas comes to them with the solution to their problems. But why do they want to kill Jesus? Why do they hate Jesus so much? Well, officially, the charge that they're going to lay upon Jesus is that of blasphemy. That's going to be the charge of which they find Jesus guilty and for which they put him to death. Okay, When Jesus stands trial before the Sanhedrin a couple of days after this event takes place, the high priest asks him, chapter 14, verse 61, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus said, I am. 
And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and he said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as being deserving of death. Now, I'll let you in on a little secret. I don't think they're particularly incensed about Jesus' claims. In fact, I don't think they care about the honor of God at all, such that they felt the need to defend his honor against what they viewed to be the false prophecy of a false prophet. I think the charge of blasphemy was largely a smokescreen for what was a deeper underlying issue. Namely, I think they hated Jesus because he threatened their position as the religious elite in Israel. I think they hated Jesus because Jesus was a constant affront to their carefully constructed system of self-righteousness. At the heart of their sin was pride, and there's no kind of pride like religious pride. And Jesus, every time he ran into them, he just would, he would take his supernatural finger and he would put it right on the point where it hurt the point of their pride in their own self-righteousness. For instance, in John chapter 5, when on another occasion Jesus was in Jerusalem, he was speaking to these same leaders, and he said, John 5.44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you don't even seek the glory that comes from the only God? In other words, I'll tell you where your eyes are focused. I'll tell you where your praise comes from. Your eyes are focused on one another, and you want nothing more than to receive slaps on the back from them. The commendation of Almighty God means nothing to you. That was the root of their sin. They loved the praise of men. And they only loved God insofar as he did not interfere with that praise, which is to say they did not love God at all. And every time Jesus came to Jerusalem, he exposed that hypocrisy and the hardness of their hearts. Another time that he's in Jerusalem, John chapter 8, verse 42, he tells them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here not of my own accord, but he sent me. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear him is that you are not of God. So the takeaway from these first two verses is that it is entirely possible, it happens all the time, and it is a danger of which we need to be warned this morning, it is entirely possible to be religious, even very religious, even a religious leader in a religious institution like a church, and yet have no true affection for God and no true affection for His Son. So examine your hearts. Make sure Make sure, make sure that you do not love God only in so far as he affirms your own worth and value. People are happy with the idea that God demonstrated his extravagant love for us in sending Christ to secure our salvation. But the thought of reciprocating that extravagant love would never even cross their mind. I mean, sure, God gave his only son to save me. Why wouldn't he? 
but I'm not going to pour out this expensive vial of perfume upon him. That would be, quote, wasteful. You see the problem there? True affection for God loves God as God. Not because he affirms what I already believe and love in myself. True affection for God loves God because of his infinite beauty and worth and glory and it desires to be with him more than it desires anything else. And that kind of affection is of the essence of saving faith. Now, that's what it looks like to have no affection for God. And of that, we need to be warned. But now we need to ask, what does it look like to love God and to love his son really and truly and deeply? And how can we foster that kind of affection so that it is real and true and growing in our own lives and in our own church? We're going to attempt to answer that question by looking at verses 3 to 9 and the abundant affection which this woman showed for Jesus. Verse 3, And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Now, this story is also told in John's gospel, as well as Matthew's, but Matthew's doesn't provide any new details. But John's does. In John's version of this story, several new details emerge, which I think are important to establish before we begin to unpack this passage. So I'm not going to read it, but I'm going to tell you four things that emerge out of John's telling of this event that you need to know. Number one, John tells us that this event took place six days before Passover, which would make it Saturday night, the night before the triumphal entry on Sunday. Now, that's not a contradiction of Mark's timing, because Mark's account of this story has no necessary chronological link to the verses that come before or after. Mark Mark simply says that the anointing happened while Jesus was at Bethany, and Jesus was at Bethany for the better part of a week. So Mark's inclusion of the story is not tied to time, it's tied to theme. There's something Mark wants us to see about this story by sandwiching it between the plot of the religious leaders and the betrayal of Judas. Okay, number two, John actually tells us who this woman was. John adds that Lazarus was reclining at table with Jesus, the same Lazarus whom Jesus had raised from the dead, that Martha served this particular meal, and that Mary is the woman who anointed Jesus. This means that Simon the leper 
was maybe the father of Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, or else a very close friend. And at any rate, Simon didn't have leprosy anymore, or else he wouldn't have been hosting a dinner. So it's likely that Simon, too, had once been healed by Jesus. Number three, John says that it was a pound, that's a Roman pound, so it's about 11 and a half ounces, of pure nard, which Mary poured over Jesus' head. And then John adds that Mary also anointed Jesus' feet and wiped them with her hair. And that point's going to become important in a moment. It says that this caused the whole house to be filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Finally, John adds the important detail that it wasn't just all of the disciples as a whole, but it was Judas in particular who questioned why the ointment was not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor. And John, who has a little bit more insight on this than Mark does, says that this wasn't because he cared about the poor. Rather, this was because he was a thief. And he used to help himself out of the money bag that he was the caretaker for. Okay, so what we're going to do, we're going to take John's account, we're going to combine it with Mark's account, and we're going to glean what we can from it. Namely, I want to show you five characteristics of extravagant love that we need to know and try to incorporate by grace in our hearts and in this church. Characteristic number one, extravagant love is born out of gratitude for a deep experience of grace. Extravagant love is born out of gratitude for a deep experience of grace. This is why I think it's important to establish the identity of this family, the identity of this woman as Mary, the brother of Lazarus, and possibly the daughter of Simon. See, Mark has his reasons for leaving her anonymous. You'll notice that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus play no role in Mark's gospel, which possibly is because they were Judeans and Mark's audience is Romans and they wouldn't have known them. But we know from the gospels of Luke and John who this family is. We know certain things about them and therefore it's helpful for us to identify the woman as Mary because it gives us insight as to why she did this thing. It gives us insight as to why she had this deep and profound affection for Jesus she had experienced incredible mercy at his hand. She had experienced, just a few months prior, the tragedy of watching her beloved brother grow sick and die. And you remember from John chapter 11 that Mary and Martha, they had sent for Jesus, who was well known to them. They had earlier hosted him in their home, according to Luke chapter 10 had probably done so, in fact, a number of times when Jesus traveled to Jerusalem for the feasts. But when they called for Jesus on this occasion, Jesus didn't come. They called for him in their hour of the need. They said, Lord, he whom you love is sick. The implication is, please come and heal him. And John says, and when Jesus found this out, he waited four more days, or two more days, rather. He waited two more days. He waited until Lazarus was good and dead. And then he came and traveled to Bethany. And by the time Jesus arrived in Bethany, Lazarus had been dead for four days. And when he gets there, Martha appears to be angry with him. John eleven twenty one. 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's an accusation. Mary, instead of being angry, was just immobilized by grief. Martha goes out to meet Jesus, Mary just stays at home 
in her grief. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out and met him. Mary remained seated in the house. Now you know the rest of the story. Jesus goes to the tomb of Lazarus. He commands that the stone be taken away. He declares that they would see the glory of God. He lifts up his eyes to heaven and he prays. And then he cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the dead man rose to life and walked out of the tomb, having been summoned out of death by the sovereign command of the Son of God. Now, I believe it's that incredible act of mercy which had happened just a few months earlier that had evoked within Mary this deep sense of gratitude toward Jesus and had provoked within her this extravagant expression of that love. And then, if Simon the leper was indeed her father and Jesus had cleansed him of his leprosy, that gratitude was even deeper. So Mary had experienced the grace and the life-changing mercy of Christ. And extravagant love grows out of the soil of that deep experience of grace. So if you want to cultivate an extravagant love for Jesus, you need to contemplate the depth of grace which he has shown you and the life-giving power which you have experienced. For the power which brought you out of spiritual death is greater, infinitely greater, than the power that raised Lazarus from the dead. The story is related as a shadow to the reality. Jesus comes up to Lazarus' tomb, commands the stone be rolled away, and commands Lazarus to rise and come forth out of the dead. But guess what? Lazarus died again. When Jesus came to you in the deadness of your trespasses and sins and he stood outside the tomb of your heart and he said, arise and come forth and you arose and you came forth to repentance and saving faith and new life, you will never die. So your well of grace from which you can draw forth extravagant love is infinitely deeper than Mary's. So if you want to tap into that well, or rather if you want to show the extravagant demonstrations and displays of your love for Christ, if you want to feel that extravagant love for Christ, you need to tap into the depths of that well of the grace which he has shown you in raising you from death to life and bringing you into eternal joy with Christ. Second, extravagant love not only is born of gratitude for a deep experience of grace, extravagant love is costly. This was the fact that caused the indignation amongst the disciples, especially Judas, who reports that the alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard could have been sold for 300 denarii. I don't know how he knows such things, but Judas seems to know a lot about money and the cost of things. Nard was an expensive aromatic oil extracted from the root of an Indian herb. It would have been contained in an alabaster canister in order to retain its fragrance. A denarius was roughly equivalent to a day's wage for a laborer, so 300 denarii would amount to somewhere in the neighborhood of twenty-five dollars to $30,000 in today's economy. So this would be like buying and then breaking 
a $30,000 vial of perfume. Pouring it upon Jesus as an act of love and worship. Nowhere in the Gospels do we get the idea that Mary or her family were exceedingly wealthy. Now, they were probably upper middle class if there was such a thing. They're able to host these meals. They're able to have Jesus in their home. But you don't get the idea that they're fabulously rich. This undoubtedly represented the best, most priceless possession that Mary owned. This was Mary's treasure, and she gave it all to Jesus because she had found a new treasure. And this is what extravagant love does. Extravagant love can't help but give beyond its means. It gives its treasure away because it's found something more to be treasured. This is what the rich young ruler could not do. He would never have been able to break this flask and anoint Jesus, not unless he had nine other flasks just like it that he could keep for himself. See, the truth of the matter is, if your love for Jesus does not cost you anything, if it does not cost you something significant, then it's not extravagant. That's the definition of extravagant, beyond its means. And yet nothing about this scene gives the impression that Mary was begrudging or sad about spending this ointment on Jesus. She doesn't grimace as she pours it out. Like some of us grimace when we put the check in the offering plate. On the contrary, she seems overjoyed to do so. She seems rather like the man who out of his joy sold all that he had in order to buy the field and obtain the treasure in Matthew 13, 44. So examine yourself. Does your love for Jesus ever express itself in costly ways? Ask yourself that question. Does my love for Jesus cost me anything? Or are you like the husband who thinks extravagant gifts are a waste and has to remind himself to pick up something cheap for his wife on the anniversary so he won't get in trouble? Is that the way you love Jesus? While we're on the topic, how is the state of your giving to the ministry of the Lord through the local church? Is that cheerful, joyful, and does it ever approach the level of extravagant? Food for thought. Number three, extravagant love is scandalous. Now, clearly, there were those in attendance who were scandalized by this expression of love. And I see two possible sources of this scandal. One is explicit in Mark's text, and one is implicit in John's text. First, the disciples, and in particular Judas, were scandalized by what they considered to be the waste of money that this extravagant act of worship represented. Surely they thought the money this ointment was worth would have been better spent on the poor. Okay? Now, as we will see in just a moment, John makes this clear that Judas had no concern for the poor and his objection was just a smokescreen for his greed. But let's assume for the moment that the other disciples have a real and genuine concern for the poor and they're putting, they're putting 
Jesus and the poor on the scale of values, and they're saying, you know, it's one thing to pour out this perfume on Jesus, and that's, that's good, but wouldn't it be better if we were to feed a bunch of people? So their idea of waste was that it, wasn't, it just wasn't practical to show this extravagant love to Jesus. So they scolded her. The second scandal, so they were scandalized by the impracticality of this gift. Didn't make sense. The other scandal is not found in Mark, but it's actually, it's actually implied by a small detail in John's gospel. And that's where John tells us that Mary not only anointed Jesus' head, but also his feet, and here's the kicker, and wiped them with her hair. This is an intimate, though look up, look up here, though not sexual, this is an intimate act for a Jewish woman to let down her hair in the presence of a man or a group of men and to proceed to wipe his feet with it. There were surely those in attendance, one may fairly or unfairly think probably Martha, who would have thought that this act was unseemly inappropriate, and scandalous. Much like David's wife found David's dancing before the Ark of the Covenant when they were bringing it into Jerusalem to be scandalous and undignified and improper. But Mary evidently didn't care what the others would think, and those who are in love with Jesus rarely do care what other people think. She loved Jesus with a pure, holy, extravagant love And this intimate act was an expression of that love. So there's a lesson to be learned here, which is this. People will despise you if you are extravagant in your love for Jesus. They will look down their Pharisaic noses at you. They will scold you. They will call you foolish, unbalanced, immature, charismatic, pay them no mind. Let them be scandalized because Jesus will one day come to your defense just like he came to her defense and in the, in the eyes of all of those people who are scandalized and scold you, he will say, leave her alone. She has done a beautiful thing. Do not scold lovers of Jesus for doing beautiful things. I pray that this church would be a place where beautiful expressions of love for Jesus are frequent. And nobody comes down and shakes their finger at people and scolds them and says, that's impractical, that's undignified, that's charismatic. Oh, you just wait until you get more more mature in the faith, which generally means less emotional. Don't be like that. Which brings me to the fourth point. Extravagant love will have its enemies. What I mean is, there will be certain roadblocks, certain hindrances to the feeling and expressing of extravagant love for Jesus that we need to watch out for. 
There are two in particular in this passage. First, in the disciples, okay, again, assuming that their objection to Mary's act represents a genuine concern for the poor, let's give them the benefit of the doubt here, we find the enemy of pragmatism. Pragmatism is an enemy of extravagance. In fact, they are antithetical one to the other. In other words, they looked at the cost of what Mary did and concluded that it was a waste because it could have done a lot more good if it had been sold and given to the poor. But note, note, Jesus does not commend their pragmatic attitude. That might be surprising to us. We might think that Jesus would commend their concern for the poor, that he might commend their value system and say, you know what, they're right. We probably should not have broken this and wasted it on me and sold it and fed a bunch of people with this. That's probably what we should have done. That's not what Jesus says, is it? He commends not their pragmatism. He commends Mary's, quote, wasteful act as a beautiful thing. He tells them that they will always have the poor and they will always have the opportunity to do good to them, but they will not always have him. And I want you to watch very carefully what he's doing here because it's scandalous. By saying this, Jesus is exalting himself above the second commandment, which says you shall love your neighbor. By how? How are you supposed to love your neighbor? Like by feeding them when they're hungry, right? So if Jesus exalts himself above the second commandment, then what category does he place himself in? The first, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. What's he saying about himself? It would be wrong for me to buy a $300 bottle of perfume and pour it over Jason's head. I like Jason, but he's not worth that. Because that money, it is true, right? That money would be better spent fulfilling the second commandment, which is to love our neighbors. There's only one person for whom this act would not be wasteful, and that's God. Expressing our love for God is a higher good than expressing our love for our neighbor. You see what Jesus is doing? That's incredible. Do not take that to mean that Jesus says we shouldn't have concern for the poor. That's not what he meant. And you know that. You are intelligent people. You can discern that. Rather, he meant that loving him and expressing that love in an extravagant act of worship is the highest good in the universe. It is beautiful in his sight. So pragmatism is an enemy of extravagant love for Jesus. Let's keep our orders of priority straight here. It is better to love Jesus than to love your neighbor. And we're commanded to do both. The second enemy of extravagant love mentioned implicit in this passage is that of greed. Now again, John tells us that the objection stated in Mark 14.5 was actually spoken by Judas, rather, and that it was disingenuous. John says, Judas said this, that it was wasteful, should have been sold and given to the poor. 
not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So according to Judas, this expression of extravagant love was an utter waste because it didn't accord with his value system. Judas's heart was filled with an extravagant love. It just wasn't for Jesus. Judas loved money extravagantly. And this love of money eventually destroyed him as it destroys everyone who gives into it. We can see exactly how much Judas thought Jesus was worth. We see in this passage that he didn't think Jesus was worth $30,000 in today's economy, 300 denarii. That would have been a waste, right? But Judas was willing to sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, which is equivalent to about 2,500 in today's economy. That's how much Jesus was worth to Judas. See, you cannot love Christ and money. Extravagant love for Jesus and extravagant love for money and the things that money can buy will not coexist peacefully in your heart. Like a weed in the garden of your heart, greed will choke out your love for Jesus. Fifth characteristic. Extravagant love is the natural fruit of the gospel. This is why Jesus said her act would be proclaimed everywhere the gospel is preached. In his defense of Mary, Jesus told the others that she has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. And I think the implication is she knew she was doing that. That's why she did it. There are lots of ways she could have expressed 300 denarii worth of affection for Jesus. Yet she did it in this way. Why this way? Because she wanted to anoint him for his burial, which tells you that Mary had grasped something about what Jesus was doing in Jerusalem that everyone else had failed to grasp. Jesus has said three times already that he was coming to Jerusalem to suffer and to die for sinners. The disciples didn't catch that. Mary did. But then she always seemed to pay close attention to what Jesus said, didn't she? She was the one sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to his teaching when her sister Martha got angry because she wasn't up helping her serve dinner. Jesus defended her then, and Jesus defends her now. See, Mary has understood the gospel as well as she could before Jesus' resurrection, as well as just about anybody that we've met in the gospel. She understood that Jesus has come to Jerusalem not to celebrate the Passover merely, but to die. He has come to Jerusalem not to sacrifice a Passover lamb, but to be the Passover lamb sacrificed for the sins of his people. And I think it's quite possible that she'd even grasped the symbolism that just as the Israelites of old had slaughtered a lamb and took refuge beneath its blood, which they painted over the doors so that the angel of death would not strike them down but would pass over them, so Jesus was coming to Jerusalem in order to be slaughtered as the Passover lamb so that she and everyone else could hide by faith beneath his atoning blood in order that we not die for our sins. Jesus was her Passover lamb, just as he is the Passover lamb for all who will by faith seek refuge beneath his atoning blood. 
The blood of Christ and only the blood of Christ will shelter sinners when the wrath of God falls in the day of judgment. And I think Mary got it. And that is also producing, in addition to what Jesus had done for her brother, maybe her father, primarily it's what Jesus was coming to Jerusalem to do for her that is producing this deep and profound and extravagant affection for the Lord Jesus. Correspondingly, those who do not love Jesus extravagantly have not yet understood the depths of their sin, the horrors of judgment, and the beauty of Christ's death which saves us from the wrath to come. They have not understood the gospel. You cannot believe the gospel and not love Jesus. There's one further point that I want to make before I close. Okay? We've seen the absence of affection in the religious leaders who hated Jesus and therefore hated God. We've seen the abundance of affection displayed in Mary who expressed her love for Jesus in an extravagant act of Affection and worship. Verses 10 and 11, I want to show you the atrophy of affection that is manifested in Judas Iscariot. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. I just want us to ask the question, how did Judas get here? How did he get to the place where he was willing to betray Jesus and seal his eternal doom for nothing more than a month's wages? I don't think Judas always hated Jesus. I don't agree with those who speculate that Judas was some sort of spy placed by the Sanhedrin in Jesus' inner circle in order that they could ultimately get to this point. That's not the way the gospel flows. I think that in the beginning, Judas followed Jesus out of a sincere messianic hope. I hope Jesus is the Messiah of Israel. I think Jesus might be the Messiah of Israel. Look at the power he wields. Look at the way he can say to the blind, see, and they see. He can say to the deaf, hear, and they hear. He can say to the lame, walk, and they walk. He can say to the dead, rise, and they rise. Look at the way he holds the crowds in the palm of his hands when he speaks. This is the Messiah. Problem was, Judas was not attracted to the Messiah that Jesus came to be. He was attracted to the authority and the power which Jesus wielded. He was even attracted, maybe supremely attracted, when on those occasions Jesus even delegated that power and authority to the apostles, and they began to exercise it. They began to preach to multitudes. They began to heal the sick. They began to drive out demons. Oh no, Judas did not hate Jesus when Jesus was wielding power and authority and giving him power and authority. He would have followed Jesus to death if Jesus had come to drive out the Romans and establish his kingdom on earth. But Jesus' direction began to change. 
And instead of talking about the coming kingdom, he begins talking more and more and more about suffering and dying and being crucified and looking at his disciples and telling them, and you'll take up your cross as well. And Judas says, I didn't sign up for this. And disillusionment begins to creep in. Disillusionment grows into anger. Anger festers into hatred. That's how Judas gets to the point that he is willing to sell the Son of Man for 30 pieces of silver. There is a lesson here for those of us who are in the church and have professed faith in Christ and who claim to be his follower. Be sure you have followed the real Jesus. Judas was attracted to power. Judas was attracted to authority. Judas was attracted to money. John says he was a thief. His heart was eaten up by greed and covetousness. And even though he repeatedly heard Jesus' warnings about sin, particularly the sin of greed, he never put that sin to death. He never cut off his hands. He never cut off his feet. He never gouged out his eyes, did he? He didn't heed Jesus' warning, which says, you can't serve two masters. Unmortified sin within his heart festered into this hatred. So think, church. Your affection for Jesus, or what you call affection, can atrophy if you do not take care. Because the same two dangers exist today. How many people join up with Jesus under the misguided idea of who Jesus is and what following him entails, only to fall away when tribulation or persecution arises and when it becomes clear that they cannot serve two masters? So, beloved, foster a true and deep affection for Jesus in the ways that I've stated and beware of the dangers of disillusionment and unmortified sin which will cause what affection you have to atrophy, wither away, and die. So the question of this text is, do you love Jesus? If so then this text exhorts us to deepen that love by tapping into the well of grace that Jesus has poured out into our hearts through the gospel and through the experience of mercy that we have been shown. Meditate upon how God has come to the tomb of your heart and he has awakened you out of death and he has saved you from the wrath to come and he has rescued you and he has brought you into his everlasting kingdom and he's going to give you the eternal inheritance and you will dwell in his presence in eternal and ever-increasing joy forever. And you will find extravagance growing. And if you do not love Jesus then I hold out to you the gospel in which the love of God for you was manifested and that he sent Christ to die for your sins and to rise again from the dead with the power to grant eternal life to everyone who believes.
See, the answer is the same. Do you love Jesus? You want to love him more? Look to him. Meditate upon the grace that is found in him, the grace that has been shown to you. Do you not love Jesus? Do you recognize that if you don't love Jesus, you don't actually believe in Jesus? Do you want to? Look to the extravagant love which God has demonstrated in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We love because he has first loved us. Focus upon that love. Meditate upon that love. And extravagant love will begin to take root and grow within your heart. Believe on Christ. Embrace him as the crucified sinner and the risen Lord. And you will begin to know and love him.